Good morning. Um, the second Bible reading uh, today is taken from James chapter 2, verse 1 to 13, uh, which you can find in some of the Pew Bibles in page 1173. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand, here, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are, who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Let's come before God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit who opens your word to us. We pray that you will do that with us again this morning. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, through whom we have reconciliation with you, Lord. And we pray that you will work in us every day, Lord, to make you more like Christ in a way which is visible to those around us and makes them want to know you also. Lord, forgive us when we do not do these things and when we let you down. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was young, we'd go on holidays with our family. And on one occasion, in a church that we were visiting, we went to a pew to sit down. We were politely told that this seat belonged to such and such, and could we, we please not sit there? So we went to another pew, and the same thing happened. Until finally some well-meaning person said, why don't you wait in the foyer until the red light comes on? Well, what does the red light mean, asked my parents. 
Well, they were told. That means that all of our regulars have taken their seats and you are now free to sit in any seat that's still empty. Now, some of you might actually think that this is a good idea. <laughs> but I suspect that most of you are shocked. Fancy allocating seating according to superficial things such as how long a person's been attending a church, as if they get frequent flyer points or something. But let me ask you, when you come to church, or when you step on a train, or at any time, how do you decide who you're going to talk to? Who do you sit next to and why? On what basis do you decide who you will and won't associate with? That's what we'll be considering this morning. James's introduction in verse 1 is simple. Don't show favouritism. Now James addresses his letter to Christians in all the churches, in our church. So this problem of favouritism was and is widespread. And that means that none of us can say, oh, this is about partiality, it's about favouritism. It's got nothing to do with me. James is confronting us with our bad behaviour. And that makes this passage a little bit awkward. Awkward to hear and awkward to preach. But the truth is that I'm not in this pulpit pointing the finger at James at you. I'm in the pew with you as James addresses me as much as anyone else here. Now we'll be working our way through this section of James and it might be helpful if you keep your Bibles open. And we're going to be tackling it in three sections. In the first section we'll look at what favouritism is. Then we're going to look at how God treats us. And then lastly, we'll look at how we should treat others. So let's look at our first point. What is favouritism in this context? Well, James gives us an example of favouritism or partiality in verses 2 through 4. He describes two men coming into church. One of them's a wealthy man, pulls up in a Ferrari, and he's got a nice suit and a Rolex watch and a million-dollar smile. And the other man is a smelly homeless man. He's dressed in rags, and he leaves his shopping trolley out by the front door of the church. And James says that if we give special attention to the rich man and just passing disregard to the poor man, then we have shown discrimination and we have evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. So already we get the strong impression that James is not mucking around here. He's very serious. Simply put, James is telling us not to treat people based on external appearances or position or things which we on a human level find desirable. Now, we all have a tendency to do this. Why is that? Well, if I'm honest, when I've shown favouritism, 
I've usually been looking for what I can get from someone who already has glory in the eyes of others. Or I've tried to get some sort of protection or security from others who have high standing or influence. And I suspect that you're the same. I don't think we're any different. Favoritism is motivated by selfishness. We're not thinking of the welfare of the person that we're showing favoritism to. Now we have laws against discrimination and favoritism. But this passage gives us reasons against favoritism which are based on the way that God treats us. And that's really the core message of this passage. The way that God has treated us as his people should guide the way that we treat others, as we'll see shortly. But that isn't happening if we show favoritism. So let's move on and look at how God treats us. Now, if James's readers were practicing wealth-based discrimination, then they were probably doing it based on other things as well. So why did James use this example based on wealth? Is it because it's worse than favoritism based on other things? No, not at all. James uses this example because it feeds directly into the reason why we should not show favoritism. In verse 5, James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? We often see God call the poor and the lowly ahead of the rich and the powerful. Often it's poor people who find it easier to acknowledge their spiritual failings and their need for a saviour. The rich people James refers to, they can solve all of their earthly problems. They don't need help. They don't feel like they need Christ. Have you ever felt excluded by other people, put down, not good enough? Well, there is comfort here because Jesus associated with people like you. And the snobby, socially elite Jews despised him for it. Look at him. He's hanging out with Gentiles, tax collectors, sinners, poor people. But Jesus became friends with these people. He enjoyed their company. He went to their homes and he ate with them. And often it was these people who realised that with Jesus they had everything. They shared an inheritance and a friendship with God which far outweighed what they had missed out on with other people. But of course you don't get into heaven just by being poor. James's comment that God has chosen the poor to inherit the kingdom is a direct reference to the eight Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the first Beatitude is this. Blessed are the poor 
in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, someone who is poor in spirit recognizes that they are spiritually destitute. They have nothing about them that would make God desire them over somebody else. They know that they're the spiritual equivalent of our filthy homeless person early on and that their only hope lies in God's grace because they don't deserve any sort of favour from God whatsoever. And so they stand humbly before God with their head bowed and like the tax collector in Luke 18, they say to Jesus, they say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now this is in stark contrast with the rich young man who says to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all of these commandments since my youth. That's pretty spiritually arrogant, isn't it? Look God, see how good I am. When it comes to our salvation, people naturally prefer a negotiation with God where both sides bring something to the table and together we can work our salvation out. Or they think that they deserve it, like the rich young man. But that's not how it is. God owes us nothing and we have nothing that we can offer him. And only someone who is poor in spirit can see this. In verses 6 to 7, James points out the folly of showing favoritism to the rich. He simply says, it doesn't work. This is what he says. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? He's saying they're not going to stop taking advantage of you just because you show them favoritism. And you won't convince somebody to follow Jesus by showing them favoritism. But James is highlighting a bigger problem here. Showing favoritism is an insult to Christ. In verse 6, James says, You have insulted the poor. Now Christ, the king of all creation, became poor in order to save us. He was treated as a criminal. And by looking to the rich and the powerful for help, we're turning our back on what Jesus has done for us. Favoritism is the opposite of how God works, which is why it's so evil. In verses 8 to 11, James introduces the law. Now this is important because we can't begin to understand how God has treated us until we first realise how we have treated God. We must understand our sin. And the thing that shines a spotlight onto our sin is God's law. 
verse 8, James says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. Now he's referring to Leviticus 19. And Jesus quotes this law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. So James calls it the royal law. Jesus is summarising all of the Ten Commandments. And James says that if you really keep this law, then good on you. Well done. But in verse 9, he says, But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Because none of us likes missing out when someone else is favoured over us. So if we don't like it, we shouldn't be treating others that way. In verse 11, James goes on to talk about murder and adultery, saying that if you just break one of these commandments, then you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Now, murder and adultery, they're pretty extreme sins. I mean, is James really putting favouritism in the same bag? Why murder and adultery? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus pointed out that if you even think evil of another person, or if you look at a woman with lustful thoughts, then you have, you have broken these commandments. And James is here telling us that favouritism is like murder and adultery. These sins start with how we think about other people. They're the opposite of God's love to us. Now let's not misunderstand James here. We have to treat between the read between the lines a little bit. James is not saying... Don't show favouritism because if you do, you will have broken God's law and then you'll be in big trouble because you'll be guilty before God. So don't do it. No, that's not what James is saying. He's not warning us against becoming lawbreakers. James's point is that we are already guilty. In Romans 3, we read... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the next chapter in James, uh, James 3, we read in verse 2, We all stumble in many ways, and anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. We've all sinned. We've all broken God's commandments. We may not have murdered or committed adultery in action, but we have in our minds. And we've all showed favouritism. 
So we are guilty lawbreakers. Verse 10 says that all we need to do is break just one commandment in God's law and we're guilty of breaking the entire law. Now our guilt is a terrible thing. But we tend to be less concerned about our offence against God than we are about the sentence that we will receive. So let's pause and consider the sentence which faces every person guilty of breaking God's law. Now this is important because James is going to bring up God's mercy shortly. But that only makes sense if we know what we face without God's mercy. What is the sentence that awaits us for breaking God's law? Well, those who stand guilty before God are destined to be cut off from God and from everything that is good and to spend the rest of eternity in torment as objects of God's unending wrath in hell. No appeal, no relief, no hope. Now hell is a dirty word at the moment. People don't like to hear about hell. Mercy, love, they're fine, but not hell. In fact, we may even get a complaint about this sermon. But that's all right, I'm going on holidays and John can handle it. (laughs) But God's judgment is what the Bible teaches. We read about it before in Romans 2. And it's what we face as we stand before God guilty of adultery and murder and favouritism. I mean, can you imagine if James left it at this point? Don't show favouritism because you'll be up there with murderers and adulterers. Oh, by the way, you are all lawbreakers. You're all guilty. Full stop. That'd be it, wouldn't it? Game over. Thankfully, God does not treat us as we deserve. James goes on in verse 12. He says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The law that gives freedom. What's that? Maybe there's some comfort here. Judgment and law... They're scary words, especially after James has just shown us that we're all guilty lawbreakers. But freedom, that sounds like a glimmer of hope. So what is this law that gives freedom? Well, Once again, we have to go elsewhere to better understand what James is referring to. Romans 8 starts with these words. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So there is no condemnation. 
we are free. God says to us, you are forgiven. Now how did Jesus do this? Well that's the gospel, isn't it? He took on our guilt and he stood condemned in our place before God. He took our sentence and he defeated death and hell. So the judgment for our sins over and done with. Jesus has fulfilled the law and we who believe in Jesus Christ have been shown grace. That's the law that gives freedom. We don't have to keep the law out of fear of the condemnation that awaits us for breaking it. We're free from that. Now we are free with the Holy Spirit's help to keep the law out of thanks for the certain salvation that is ours now because of what Jesus has done. That is how God has treated us. He has given the inheritance of the kingdom to us who are poor, who are poor in spirit. And he has shown us mercy in Christ when we were guilty of breaking his law. So let's move on to our third point. How does James bring us back to the manner in which we should treat others? Well, we have been shown mercy. Grace is the gift that we have been given which we do not deserve. Mercy is the punishment which has been withheld, which we do deserve. Therefore, we should also show mercy to others. And not just in church, but every day of the week. Our attitude toward others should reflect God's attitude toward us. Did God require that we please him before he showed us love and generosity? No. His favour to us was totally undeserved. In verse 13 we read, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Now this is a frightening verse because it shows just how seriously James takes this. It reminds us of the parable of the unmerciful servant who owed his king a huge debt that he could never repay. But the king had mercy on him and he wiped the debt clean. But then the servant showed no mercy to another man who owed him a very small debt. So the king was furious with the unmerciful servant and he gave him no mercy and he threw him into prison and his massive debt was not forgiven after all. So verse 13 forces us to examine ourselves. If we are in the habit of showing favouritism, if God's mercy has made no difference to the way we treat others and to the way, we, the way we think about them, then maybe we have not actually understood God's mercy to us. Maybe we are not yet saved. 
But if we are no longer characterised by favouritism, then that's reassuring. That's a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in us and that our faith is real. So how might we practice favouritism today? Well, we might base it on race or gender or disability or whether somebody thinks like us or age or beauty. I know of another church where a beautiful young woman walked in for the first time and the eyes of every single young guy in the congregation lit up. They all thought the same thing that this person deserves a special seat of honour next to me. Until her husband and her three little kids walked in, that changed things a little bit. But I hope that we are as warm in our welcome to all of our newcomers. I've seen people elsewhere form cliques based on what language they spoke. On the positive side, I have seen a person more resembling the second man in James's example come into this church. And one of our young people welcomed him and engaged with him in genuine conversation. It was excellent to see. Now James is not saying that we can't have close friends and special relationships because we have to treat everybody the same. I love my wife dearly. But if I treated everybody the same as my wife, I'd be in a bit of trouble. And of course, some people deserve special honour. For example, our parents or the elderly or those in positions of God-given authority. And even Jesus himself had close friends. But our relationship should not be based on external qualities like wealth and beauty or what we can get out of it. That's not what a community of believers should look like. In a church, we should see a group of people who are genuinely enjoying fellowship with each other, even though they're very different. Old with the young, rich with the poor, different races, etc. It doesn't matter. We're all bound together by God's love in Christ Jesus. Now, we can all be better at this. I certainly can. Let me invite you to look around. Now, maybe this is a little bit uncomfortable. Do our morning and our evening services represent a fairly even mix of the diversity that we have at St. Stephen's? Demographically, our morning and our evening services are quite different. Now, sure, there's practical reasons why people might prefer to go to the morning or to the evening service that have got nothing to do with favouritism. I get that. But is it also possible that our mix may reflect a tendency to prefer to be with others who are like us? People who share external qualities with us, such as university or age or children or retirement. Do we sometimes form cliques and without realising it cause others to feel less welcome? And if so, is it possible that we might be showing favouritism in this way? And to be fair, we should be asking ourselves this question in the evening as well as now in the morning. Now, I don't want to be seen as overly critical. In this group, I have noticed people mixing very warmly with other people who are very different, for example, old with the young. 
and I have to be honest here myself. I sometimes prefer the company of young people in the evening service because they make me feel as young as I am on the inside. <laughs> Which is pretty young because I've never really grown up. We also have to be careful not to become spiritual snobs, to consider ourselves better than others because they're rough and unpolished around the edges, for example. That's what the Pharisees were like. A spiritually poor attitude before God should go hand in hand with humility towards others. God has shown us mercy and grace. We stood before him with nothing but our guilt. And yet he loved us and gave us mercy. So how can we require that other people then demonstrate certain qualities before we deal favourably with them? God loved us when we were wretched and poor. So how can we show favouritism to people who are rich in worldly terms? as if they're somehow better than others. God saved us unconditionally. What kind of Christians would we be if we then showed conditional favour to others? Mercy triumphs over judgment, we read at the end of this passage. God's love is deeper and it lasts longer than his anger. Where my sin has increased, God's grace has abounded all the more. And God's mercy to me triumphs over my judgment of others. God's grace motivates us to show grace to human beings who have the dignity of being created in God's image. And where we fail in this, we ask for God's forgiveness. Now, if we treat others the way that God has treated us, then God will use us to draw people to himself. We represent Christ, which is why we as believers should not show favouritism. When people meet us, they should see a glimmer of God's love and mercy through us to them. Let's pray that they do see this and that they want to follow it back, not to us, but, but to its true source, Jesus Christ. Let's pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as individuals and as a congregation to make us more like Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown to us. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit sanctifying work in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that the love that you have shown us, that your mercy and your grace is not something that we just think about academically, but it's something that we understand down to the core of our being and that it changes us and that we reflect your treatment of us to those who are around us, Lord. 
Because, Lord, we do not witness about you only in what we say, but also, Lord, in everything that we do. Lord, you have given the task to your people. And even though we are flawed and rusty tools, you use us to spread the word and the blessing of Jesus and Christ to all the peoples. Lord, we're grateful for this, but we ask for more and more of your Holy Spirit to help us in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen.